What an interesting backdrop to to grow up in of those, you know, characters of these legends, right? That you got I think you got to see Vegas sort of at its best when you oh. know uh, Frank Sinatra to to... might be walking into a casino and you might see him, right? Or something to that extent. Oh, it yeah. just seemed like a different it was definitely a different era. We would go into the country club at the DI on the weekends and Johnny Carson was in there a lot. And we'd watch him, you know, my mom and dad, we'd watch him in the evening in tonight show. And uh, we'd go to the clubhouse Saturdays and Sundays and he'd be in there by himself having breakfast, reading the paper. And be like, you know, hey, there's Johnny Carson. No big deal, right? There's just Johnny sitting there enjoying his coffee yeah. at the uh, the DI, yeah. <laughs> having a you know quiet breakfast by himself. He, <laughs> there was a uh, numerous numerous people. I mean, I two houses. We lived on the third green at the Desert Inn, and two houses to our left was um, Bob Mayhew. He was Howard Hughes' right hand guy, and yeah. I went to school with his son Billy. Yeah, because that would have been in the era when he was buying everything up in Las Vegas, right? Hughes was. Yes, he, he was living in the top two floors of the Desert Inn, oh, right that's behind right. the clubhouse. Yeah, that's right. He didn't come out for years, right? That's when he was kind of holed up in there and buying everything that came he available was, in the uh, yeah, in Las he, Vegas area. Yeah, they they told him to move out, and he said, well, hell with it, I'll just buy the whole damn hotel. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting era. What an interesting era. And the, the hotels were small then too. You could, it was you'd go in one hotel and then you could see Lola Falana was singing in the lounge, and my parents, you know, my dad would gamble a little bit. You could take your chips from say the Desert Inn, and you could go over to Caesar's Palace or the Dunes or the Sands and use those same chips. But you can use them all over town in grocery stores, whatever. You can use the casino chips as currency can't do that anymore no you gotta trade them in but back then when it was smaller everybody knew everybody's currency was essentially good right no big deal yes mm-hmm. I, I was gonna ask you about your golf game when when did you get good enough to know that you were going to turn professional and then when you did turn professional what tours did you did you play and and i know you played all over the world but where did you kind of start where did you kind of go and how was that journey you know i played some amateur tournaments and I didn't win any of the big ones. I I played with Jack Nicholas Jr. at the Western. And the next year I was I went down to Long Beach and they had a tournament there called the Long Beach Queen Mary. It's where Fred Couples turn pro. Okay. Yeah. The Long Beach Queen Mary Open. And they you know, it was they only had room for like four or five amateurs. Fred's told the story himself. He did the same thing. He he said, we don't have any, they told him we don't have any room for amateurs, but we have room for pros. And I said, well, you know, that's where Fred turned pro. I might as well do it there too. And try and hone my game on, uh, on learning different types of grass. The hardest thing to me in professional golf, and I tell Owen's son and some of his kids when I go caddy for him on their web tour as the hardest is waking up in different beds feeling different from day to day and expecting your game to be repetitive and then learning to play on different types of grass 
there's so many different facets that go into being a touring pro that it's not just, okay, the guy can hit it 300 yards off the tee and he can hit a six iron 190 yards and he puts pretty good. Some guys are married and have kids at a young age and they don't want to leave. They don't want to be away from their kids. So you, you also got to be kind of a, you kind of got to be okay being by yourself in strange hotel rooms and different cities. I was able to play pretty good. I did. I, I played in Asia in the mid eighties. That was a life changing experience. It's gotta be some good Just, stories from that. My God. Well, my brother and John Jacobs had become friends and if you wanted to tour Asia and play golf, you wanted JJ telling you where to go and where to stay and what to eat. How, how much fun was he to hang out with back in the day? Oh, he's, he, absolutely. It was like, to me, it was kind of like in 1986, it was like hanging out with John Wayne. He <laughs> 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 it, it was, it was, it was a complete man to me I was like I'm looking at this guy he's big he's got a cigarette hanging in his mouth and he he can drink all night and wake up the next day and shoot 65 and hit his driver at 300 yards and he carries around a briefcase full of cash and yeah when the plane arrives he'd tell me when the plane arrives here in, uh, in Jakarta don't get on the bus Wait till we get all of our luggage. I got somebody coming to pick us up, and we're staying in a different hotel. And I'm like, oh, yes sir, yes sir, <laughs> okay, whatever, whatever you say. And he, he's a prince of a guy, absolutely. Um, I met uh, met some fabulous Asian golfers. The wonderful, one of the wonderful things about golf is I I played in twenty different countries from South Africa, Australia, all over Asia, Europe, you know, Canada, Mexico, all 48 states I've been. I've never been to Alaska. People that love golf are generally 99%, I believe, very good people of character. Because it's the only game that I know where you call penalties on yourself. And the people that dig that usually have a pretty good character. I agree with but even, that. Even some of the Asian golfers that I met didn't speak any English, but you can see the way they play the game. They're a good guy. You know, they, they're honorable. They, they, they're gentlemanly. And some of the, some of the black fellows I played with in South Africa, the same. It didn't matter what they looked like or what language they spoke. If they loved golf, it seemed to me like they were on and off the course. They were very nice people, very people that you like. I met John Cook when I was uh, ten years old, eleven years old, playing junior golf down in Southern California. And I'm 58 now, and we're still dear friends. We text each other all the time, send each other jokes. We see him at golf tournaments and. I mean, he asked, like I said earlier, he asked me to caddy for him in the 82 PGA at Southern Hills. And here it is. You know, that was you know, 10 years old. I'm 50, 40, 45 
something 45, 48 years later. Still friends, right? We're still friends, and we still love golf, and he's uh, he's not playing much anymore, but he's doing a lot of wonderful announcing, and but we're still friends, and Owen Brown, I've like I said, uh, I guess <laughs> Steve Jones, I knew him when he was, I know Corey Palin, I've seen when college golf, amateur golf, I've known these guys so long, and every time we see each other, like, hey, what you doing? It's not like, oh, you again. Yeah, there's a bond, right? Like, you guys played professionally oh. together. You've traveled the world together. I mean, there has to be a sense of there's fraternity about that. Yeah. I'd have yeah, to imagine. And, I, and this age group, they still, if if somebody on the range, like if, if Owen wasn't chipping well and he asked Corey, Corey, you watch me hit some chips, they can't wait to get over there and help you. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of that happens on the regular tour now. I haven't been out there in six, eight years. But these guys, you know, will you watch me do this? Or you remember when I was playing real? You remember when I won the PGA or the U.S. Open? I was, did, does this look anything like that? <laughs> they have such vast memories of major accomplishments that they, they can tell you, you know, you didn't do that when you won the, you know, the players championship in 2003 or when you won the PGA in 98 or when DJ won the PGA at Sahali or I don't know how close these guys are on the regular tour. Now I know I, I'm friends with Ricky Fowler and, uh, you know, I chat with him every once in a while. I see him at some of the discovery properties. Um, he's a great guy. I've met Jordan a couple of times in Dallas. I just moved back to Las Vegas. Jordan is always, you know, how are you, sir? Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to see you again, sir. Very polite. And I'm like, you know, this kid, he's, <laughs> he may have a somewhat of a loose golf swing, but he believes that he's going to knock it in the hole. When he gets within 80 yards of the green, he thinks he's going to knock it in the hole with, from anywhere. Yeah, I think that bond is there with those young guys. You see, even like with Woodland at the U.S. Open, you were probably traveling and see it, but you know Justin Thomas and Spieth and Cooch, those guys were all waiting for him. You know, there's a lot of the younger yeah. guys who are younger than than Woodland. You know, they they're, they're friends, they respect them. Like like the, the Tiger era was interesting, where it's be a total alpha male and you know screw you. I'm not. I mean, you know. I'm in yeah. my dome, you stay in your dome. I kind of like the camaraderie. Yeah, you want to beat the shit out of each other when you're on the golf course, but once it's over, oh, yeah. you know, oh, you can want. be friendly, right? I mean, but, you know, if I play a match with a buddy, I, I want to beat him. But when it's over, we're going to grab a beer, right? Like, it's not it's not a death oh, yeah. match here. I and, like that camaraderie they, of back and forth. I, I like seeing oh, it. believe, and they want those, those good friends that happen and bond and become lifelong they want Ricky Fowler. He wants Jordan Spieth to play great, and he wants to beat him by one or more shots. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to beat those guys and them not play their best. Well, I think every golfer right, likes that, right? Like, I don't. I, I would. I don't want to play a match with my buddy shoots eighty, and you know, I shoot seventy four, and it's not close. Like, I want us both to play really well, and then one of us edge each other, right? Like, I think that's that's what makes golf yeah. fun. Right, I yeah, want my competitor want, to play well. I want that coming down. I want it to come down to the last hole. And I think yeah. every golfer who loves golf wants that, right? Like that's what you're kind of 
it's not fun when it's over on 14. Like I want that match <laughs> to come down to the last. So I, right. And I think that's commonplace for most golfers, right? Even on the professional level that they want their competitor to be, to play well. You just want to nip them at the end. Yeah. You want to, you want to hit that great 15 foot pot on the last hole to, to close them out one up or beat them by a shot or you, you know, you don't want some guy to make a couple of doubles coming down the stretch. No, and, no. You, know, you, you walk away with it. And especially if they're friends. Like, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with Lee Trevino when my, my parents were separated. And uh, I moved to Dallas. My mom was from Dallas. And I went out to Royal Oaks and Randy Smith, great guy. Absolutely. He let me uh, pick the range, and I could hit balls and play out there a lot on Mondays and when it was late in the day and there weren't many members out. And Justin Leonard was growing up then at that course, and Lee Trevino practiced there. And I used to, I used to love to go out there on Mondays when when I saw his Lincoln. He'd park it on the range, and he had one of those big duffel bags that softball teams use and little league teams where they put their bats and all their equipment in it. He had one of those that was about half full of balls and he'd dump that thing out and he'd hit balls all over the range and there's nobody out there and the members of course it's closed on Mondays and I could sit there and talk to him and, and he'd tell me, oh, this is, this is how you do this and this is how you do that. How good was that ball striking up close when you saw it? He called the shots. And then he'd tell you why and how he did it. Whenever he, a lot of times he would be talking and sometimes he was just talking to, I think, fill the air with something other than thinking about maybe bad shots. I don't know what it was, but he talks all the time. But when he, when he took his hand off the club and pointed at me, that's when you really, really paid attention. And some mornings I I would come in and open up the cart barn and he'd be sitting in a cart in the cart barn with a cup of coffee and a newspaper and he'd be reading the paper and there'd be people. And after about the fourth day, I was like, Mr. Torino, why don't you go inside the clubhouse? And he goes, well, if I go in there, they're going to want to talk to me and I can't read the paper. Yeah. He liked his, <laughs> he liked his silence too, didn't he? Or like he was very public, but yet. I've read stories where he just allowed him to go back to the hotel room when the day was over and that was it and have his alone time. He's, right. You know, he, the Mary Max was sort of his outer thing, but he's also a very private person, correct? Oh, yeah. He he told me, I, I asked him, I said, what's, that, what's it like having dinner with Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer? And, and he said, you know, Sandy, I didn't have that many dinners with a lot of the pros. Because we were friends but I didn't want to be such close friends with him that I could possibly feel sorry for him coming down the stretch. Interesting. And I was like, wow. Now, here's a guy that grew up with not much. Yeah. I mean, he, he like Hogan, right? Like, he found it in the ground and came from nothing and just worked his ass off. I mean, tremendous amount of talent. Oh. But, my God, the, the work ethic that man had to get to where he got. I love his golf swing. I think I love Trevino's golf swing. If I could oh, replicate his wedge, how... His, oh. his wedge game is... I've never seen anybody ever chip out of Bermuda rough as well as he could. 
he had it down. He would grind on his wedges and he hit wrap those leather grips around the, the handle and work it and hit little little. I said, I'm gonna try and hook this one, Sandy. And to see the grain is this way. Well, I want it to hook and run up that hill. If I hit it, if I hit it normal or cut it a little bit, it'll check and that grain will kill it and I'll have a 15 footer. He told me stories. Uh, he goes, you know that. Some of those stories you hear about me not wanting to go in the clubhouse at Augusta National because, uh, you know, it's kind of a white club. He goes, that's nonsense. He goes, I get along with everybody. He goes, I changed my shoes in the parking lot because I didn't have to, I could go from the car straight to the driving range. If I went in the locker room, I had to walk all the way across the parking lot and all the way back over to the range, and everybody wanting to talk to me it would take forever. Right, just efficient with his time, right? He's there to work. He's there to work. Like, what a, just right. a great champion. You know, like I said, yeah. that, that golf club, you know, I, I love studying the golf swing. And I, I don't know if there was a club more square for an extended period of time. I mean, that, I love that action of that golf swing that he had. It's, oh, it, it's just brilliant. He told me, uh, he said, you know, Sandy, I hit the ball low. He, he goes, the reason I never won at Augusta, he said, because I hit the ball low. And I'm a good putter. I'm not a great putter. He goes, to win at Augusta, you either have to be a, a low ball hitter and a great putter or a high ball hitter and a good putter. He goes, it just, just doesn't fit my eye. It doesn't fit my game. He goes, I've played well there a couple of times. Yeah, he goes, but a low ball hitter, when those greens are firm, and then you're next, the next thing you know, you're putting back downhill because the ball's skipping and he goes, he goes, then I figured out, you know, that's not the end of the world, not winning that tournament. I just want to hit the ball low off the tee so that when I mishit it, it didn't go as far offline. So I kept well, the ball down. Especially with that older equipment, I, right? You couldn't, right. I mean, if that older equipment mishits were really punished yeah, with, back in the right. Those Bellotta balls and the, some of those wooden heads, you could put a lot of side spin on a golf ball. <laughs> right, right. And uh, he said, he goes, I figured out, too, you know, I could hit it pretty straight. He said, but I figured out that I'm a better putter from right to left putts than I am left to right. And most of the greens were sloped from back to front. He said, so if I hit a cut in there, the majority of my putts throughout a round of golf are going to be right to left putts, no matter where they put the pin. And I'm like, okay, now here's a guy that's, figured out he's playing to his strengths right well you don't have that record without you know there's talent oh. and then there's brains right it's he's uh well i, dumb I like could watch pot. it all day yes oh he hit some of those low wedges and i couldn't tell the difference until he told me what he was doing that it would be a low shot that's going to skip two or three times if it stopped or it's not going to stop at all. It's just going to release and run up the green. Or it's going to hit once and check. And I was like, really? You can do that? And then you look at the mound of golf balls that he's been hitting his whole life. And you, yeah, what is, what is, I've, I've been very fortunate, Jason, to meet some of these people. I watched Byron Nelson. The things that he told me, and I've asked Tom Watson what he told him, and it was very similar. Just 
he just tried to keep the face square. He, he, he told me that he used to walk by Ben Hogan and say, you know, Ben, if you just hit the ball straight, you wouldn't have to practice so much. <laughs> well, I, did, did you ever meet Hogan? Did you ever get a chance to meet him when you were in Dallas? Yeah, I was on the, I was on the Hogan staff for a couple of years, and uh, I met him at the factory, and I never watched him hit a golf ball live. What was it, what was it like to meet him? Was he? I mean, was it that intimidating? I mean, you hear those stories where he just, the piercing eyes and that just aura he, about him. He had those eyes. I mean, uh, I've met a couple people in my life. Uh, I've met a lot of Charles Barkley, a dear friend. Uh, golf has introduced me to so many people from so many different walks of life and different jobs and passions. And Ben Hogan was definitely, I was only around him maybe a total of five minutes a couple times that I was there. And he could, he just, he had those eyes that you run into every once in a while that you seem like he's just burning right through you. And he spoke very short, two or three words, very clear and concise of what he was, the point he was trying to get across. <laughs> Not that big of a guy. And watch him swing, especially after the car accident, to watch videos of how well he got his body to move. That's incredible. Yeah, what Tiger I, I, did at Augusta, what Tiger did at Augusta, Hank Haney and I are very dear friends. I've known Hank. I've worked with him since the mid-80s. The, he told me when Tiger won the U.S. Open at Toy Pines, he said, Sandy, I can't tell you what's going on. He goes, but at the end of this week, you're going to be in disbelief. And I was like, okay. And he goes, I can't tell you because I don't want to lay that on you. And you have to keep it a secret. So he knew that Tiger's knee was, his leg was broken. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're not going to believe this guy's going to go out there and play the U.S. Open and walk around the golf course all week with a broken leg. And then he won the tournament, too. And I was like, I don't know. Superman. I figured out. I figured out a while ago I was not a good enough putter to be triumphant at a at a big time level. I was a good player. I had a couple of course records in Australia and some hole in ones and double eagles and you know it, I won some state things and I, I I really enjoyed. I opened a teaching center with Hank Haney in California. And I put together a number of Korean kids and all of them, two of them won the U.S. Junior. Terry No beat Tiger Woods in his last amateur event. I believe it was the semifinals for the Western Amateur. And then Terry went on and he won the U.S. Junior as well. And Jen Park went on and played the tour. Jenny Lee, she would, all these kids that I was coaching got full rides at big schools. I mean, Jenny went to Texas and uh, I worked a little bit with Ted O and told Dwayne Knight, the coach at UNLV. I really, really enjoyed the teaching part of young kids that are dying to get better. That was a, that was a lot of fun. That was as much fun as playing. I, I played with Greg Norman in Australia in 90 when he was, the man and I'm like 
every time he hit it, it sounded different than what I was doing. And I'm thinking, how am I going to beat this guy? Yeah, that's when he would carry it 300 yards with a wooden driver and a balada ball, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. I mean, he was, he if had, you imagine what he would have done with modern equipment today? Oh, God. And he's not that big of a man. I mean, they call him the shark, and he's great. And he, you know, he won a lot of tournaments and all. But he wasn't that necessarily that big of a guy either. But he was built, small waist, big shoulders. He looked, you know, he looked like Tarzan. Yeah, White athlete. hair. And the first tee at the Australian club in the Australian Open, he hit his tee shot, and I was like, I thought to myself, you know, I, I can go out and play good, but how am I going to beat this guy? Yeah, I don't have that gear, right? He's, he's hitting, I remember I, I caddied for Tom Landry when I was in high school in Dallas at the Byron Nelson in the Pro-Am. And Jack Nicholas was hitting balls on the range next to, um, I caddied for Mitch Mooney. And he was a pro in the tournament, but I caddied for Tom Landry in the Pro-Am, and that was another person that was an amazing guy. And Jack Nicholson warming up, he's hitting balls into this bush on the range, and they, after about five of them, they kept falling out of the bush. He goes, I can't get them to stay in the bush. <laughs> you know, what a what a great game. And anybody that has a, a chance to earn a golf scholarship playing golf, what a huge shot in the arm of self-confidence that is and accomplishment. And especially young young girls go to a major school, free you know, golf scholarship, the camaraderie. Did you see those girls play at Augusta this year, Jason? It was wonderful. I loved seeing wow. it. Yeah. And and they were. I mean, it was great down to the end. And you know, I've uh, I've got some friends uh, made from the Symmetra Tour. Uh, we played in like the pro am with them last year and stuff. And I mean, I know they can play. I've been around this my whole life, but like, it's really impressive when you see top level, you know, women golfers really, really playing. It's, you know, it, they they can flat out, you know, you put them on a sixty five or sixty six hundred yard golf course, they're going to beat the living tar out of most, you know, a good male amateur player. They're going to clobber them. Um, oh, they can they can really play, and it's my fun to watch them close. My grandfather coached Babe the Harris. And Julius Boros and a couple other, you know, he he was through playing when they were coming along. And he told my parents that Babe Zaharis had the best golf swing, male or female, in that 30s, 40s, 50s era that he'd seen. Babe Zaharis had the best golf swing. Mickey Wright was right there with her. Well, let's talk about um, other good golf swings. we got to get to your brother. Um TA3. Growing growing up, how good was he at a young age and how much competition was there you know, between you two going back and forth, pushing each other and all that stuff? Did did did, did he always have that next level gear? Could you see it at a at a young age that he was had that level of talent and like I said, how was the back and forth between you guys as rivals and yet brothers, you know, playing golf growing up? Uh well, we weren't actually so much rivals because we were also playing little league baseball at the time and growing up in Vegas. And I was a pitcher and he was a catcher and it seemed like he was always, he's 15 months older than I am, but he always seemed like he was six 
10 inches taller than everybody else on the little league team or on the golf course. So he had this, he had this extra gear of power and hit baseballs or golf balls that all the other kids really didn't have. And still, I mean, he's still on the champions tour. He's 59 now. <laughs> and he's one of, Oh, you know, Scott McCarron, obviously it's a long ways. Brent Job, Darren Clark, what a wonderful addition he is to the champions tour. I don't know if you ever have a chance to talk with him. I would love to have him on sometime. I mean, he seems yeah. like he would just be fantastic for a conversation about life and golf and everything he's seen, right? Like, how do you not like that oh, guy? Oh, believe it. But uh, I'm getting sidetracked a little bit. Um, Tommy and I never really that much of rivals because, like I said, I was a pitcher and he was a catcher, and we went two years and never lost a game. And then, you know, we'd throw the baseball in the backyard and we lived on the third green, so when we threw playing the baseball, we'd go out on the golf course and hit golf balls, and we we would take clubs apart because, you know, there were wood then and leather grips, some rubber. We learned how to re- reset inserts in wooden clubs, re-weight them, but to take the sole plate off, yeah. re-whip them. Um, we, were, we, were, we were best friends. We were... He told my dad when he was like 13 or 14, he goes, I want to be a professional golfer and I want to wear a new golf glove every day. <laughs> and he's, you know, he works and he works. The Olin even said it today when we were leaving the golf course. There was two guys, there was three guys on the putting green when we left. Tommy, VJ Singh, and Olin. And it's, Six o'clock, seven, six thirty. You know, everybody else is gone for dinner, and those three guys are still working on the putting, and been there all day. Was it the? I mean, like I looked it up. He played in six hundred and eighteen PGA Tour events. Like that's friggin' crazy good. Like for to be world class for that long, yeah, to, he, to do it at I, the, for as long as he did it for. What? 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 You know, what made him great for twenty five years? I mean, it's it's twenty five years on the tour. It's insane. He was not the best putter, even though he had, even though he shot two fifty four at the Texas Open, which was the all time low scoring record for seventy two holes until Justin Thomas broke it. I think two years ago in Hawaii. Correct. Yep. He shot sixty like sixty three, sixty four, sixty two, sixty five, two fifty four. Uh, Tommy stayed out there because he started holes well. He was kind of Greg Normanish. He drove the ball long and straight. So he, he started a lot of golf holes very well. And he he had big, strong hands. He's a, he and JJ, John Jacobs, who I'm referring to, are similar. They're just, they're just big guys that have strong hands and he, you know, he could smash irons he'd squish them and he could bust drives out there 300 yards even with a balada and a wooden head that was the size of um, some modern five woods yeah he had and he had the drive to fight it out he went to first tour school he got his tour card and i told you earlier that i went out and caddied for him about halfway through the year he called me and he goes he, he goes Will you come caddy for me? Um, you know, these caddies, you know, they're 
you know, they're, they're bugging me. They're, you know, there's some of them are showing up. Some, some of them are not showing up at all. Some of them are drunk. Some of them, you know, and I, and I jumped on it. I was like, sure. I'd love to. Cause I want to see what the courses are like. I want to watch these guys play. And, you know, the Tommy and I have always been very close. I enjoyed helping him. I got a lot of pleasure out of that. It, you know, it's, it's just he and I. Mom and Dad are gone, so that's the original reason I moved to Dallas was to be near him. Now he moved to Las Vegas because he works for the Discovery Land Company. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and uh, they opened that course, the Summit in Vegas. Yeah, he got the logo and all that stuff on his gear and whatnot. Yeah, and golf bag. Right. So, no, I just moved back to Las Vegas because he's there. Has he always had this sort of – so I got an interesting – I met your, your brother when I was in high school in the early 90s at the Western Open. I was out there, you know, I loved golf, and I was watching those guys play. Oh. And well, here comes up TA3. And, like, I instantly recognized whatever that guy's selling, I want it. Like, he just had this aura. And, you know, I don't think, is he always had that or was it calculated that, yeah. okay, when I go out on tour, I'm going to, I'm going to become JJ or John Wayne. But like he carried himself, like when I was an impressionable 15 year old, I was like, I like that guy, right? right. Like he just had this, you know, the way he signed the autographs, the way, so, I mean, he was cool. He gave me like a golf ball. I followed him for some holes, but he just uh-huh. had this thing. Like it was just this aura around TA3. Right, and I was like, oh, I'm yeah. a fan of that guy. Like, I like whatever that guy's selling. I want it. Yeah, was he always like that, or was that a was that always, a professional? Yeah. He always had it. He, he's always had it. He was, you know, when he when we were, even when we were playing little league, he had he was one of the first guys. I mean, he had two sweatbands on each hand. He had the the Puma baseball shoes. He had the bag, leather kind of bat bag and glove bag he, and then golf he you know he always had the the newest fanciest golf clubs head covers and i mean he he's probably the first i ever saw that had a putter cover i mean nobody had putter covers but he did and the swagger of the clothes my mom was a clothes horse and she loved fine clothes and tommy got that he got that disease from her <laughs> so he's, I mean, he used to, you know, he won the Phoenix Open in 90. And I think he won like, I want to say $150,000. or something back then, right? Yeah, it was probably about yeah, right I, in that I, time period. I, I, I saw that big check so many times. I think it was like 164000 I want to say. But I'm sure he took 15 of it went straight over to the Versace store and bought, you know, five or six pair of slacks and some dinner jackets. And, you know, he, he just always, he was, I call him Johnny Cash. Um, he's kind of a diva, but he's always had that about him. He always, he always wanted to look like he was going on stage. Well, yeah, when I was, uh, like I said, when I, you know, I'm just out there, Spending a, a practice round out there with my dad, and I'm like, that guy's got it. Whatever that, whatever that thing is, that dude 
that dude's got life figured out. Like you, he just had the swagger. And he still carries it. <laughs> One more question about your brother. Like he's been so sure. close to winning on the Champions Tour. Like what's it? I mean, he's still obviously. I was watching him last year when I was out the senior players, and um, you know, like I said, he hits it really good. Like you can, it's still almost sixty years old. He's, right. he's solid. What, what, what's it take for him to get over the finish line and get notch that first victory out there? It seems like it's a long time coming. Oh, you know, Jason, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how stiff the competition is. I, when I was when he came out on, on the Champions Tour, I was still caddying for him. We we went to Naples, and he's in the hunt. And on Sunday, he shoots sixty one. And Fred Couples, birdies eight, birdie seventeen, and pars eighteen, shoots sixty three to beat us by a shot. He's played really well. He's finished second at at the Woodlands, the Daly, and Faxon. He's he finished second to Olin in Atlanta, I believe. Yeah, yeah, he's been close so many times. Like it's, he it's... Would, when I was still with him, we finished second to Nick Price in Des Moines. You know, he's he gets hot and he plays really well. It's just I want to say it's kind of like Trevino said. He Trevino said I'm a good putter. I'm not a great putter. Tommy Tommy's always been a good putter, but not a great putter. Not like a Faxon or a, or a Crenshaw. Paven. Paven. Right. Guys. You know, there's a one ten times or more on the PGA Tour are great putters. Tommy won. He won the Phoenix Open. He won the Texas Open. But he, to get back to what you were saying earlier, I'm curious. I've never looked it up, but from 45 to 50, I think Tommy's played as well as maybe VJ Singh. Maybe one or two other guys has played as well from forty-five to fifty as Tommy did. Yeah, no, he, he was. He got, he, he got better. I carried for him the last, well, let's say the last fifteen years on the PJ Tour, from like thirty-five to thirty-eight to fifty, twelve years, something like that. And uh, he got better as he got older. So he really was a, a more complete player at 47 than 35. Yeah, he. I mean, he worked with uh, Hank Haney for a long time from the mid 80s. He worked with Mac O'Grady for like six years. I walked around the Las Vegas tournament with Mac, watched Tommy shoot 60, and Mac turned looked looked at me and shook hands. He goes, "Nice walking with you today. See you later." And I was like. See Mac and Mac turned and walked off, and he didn't wait for Tommy to come out of the scoring tent and you know congratulate him on a great round or anything. And he didn't talk to him for like five months, six months, and then finally they communicated. And Mac said, "Well, I just watched you shoot sixty. I didn't like your warm up that day, and then." I obviously have nothing else to teach you. If you can shoot 60, I have nothing else to teach you. <laughs> Max done, right? <laughs> Just throwing my arms so, up and saying, okay, yeah. you, you know what you're Mac, doing. Max didn't consider those guys that he worked with, Jody Mudd or Seve or Tommy or 
he didn't consider them students. He he considered them experiments. Well, I'm sure we could case. do a whole podcast just on Mac O'Grady, right? That must, I mean, he must have been one oh. of the most interesting characters to ever come across oh. in golf. Just from the stories I've heard of, like, talking with Bobby Clampett on the podcast. It's like everyone's got a Mac O'Grady story. Oh, I, Jason, I, I thoroughly enjoyed because when Mac O'Grady, when you set up an appointment to work with him, it was an all-day deal. It wasn't, it wasn't show up at, you know, 1030 and hit balls till lunch. No, hell no. You you might be in a field somewhere or on the backside of a golf course hitting, hitting near a nursery, and you're there for eight, ten hours. Was he half crazy or is he a damn genius? I wouldn't say he's crazy at all. I would say he's fanatical about what he is interested in, which is hitting golf balls. If you can watch this guy take a left-handed golf club and imitate Lee Trevino one swing and Jack Nicholas the second swing and hit the proper trajectory for a left-handed Trevino and a left-handed Nicholas and then turn around and, and turn around and do it right-handed as well. You're thinking, I'm going to listen to this guy because this guy knows how to hit a golf ball from either side. Yeah and imitate somebody in one swing and hit the ball properly. Back with Grady, he's just not, he's not a very, he's not good in crowds. And a crowd could be three people. Yeah, I find him fascinating, fascinating character, right? He's just a fascinating person. One, I'm sorry, one-on-one, he's a, it's great. He's a fantastic. One-on-one, oh yeah, very easy to get along with. I, I thoroughly enjoyed every minute with Mac. For six years, that Tommy worked with him, and I was caddying. But when I noticed when he, when he got around three or four people, and they start firing questions at him, he'd buck and you know say, "Yeah, I got something to do." And he's he wasn't comfortable talking to a lot of people at the same time. He would say, "What?" Like like he couldn't hear. But other times, you would whisper, and he heard you. <laughs> so I knew that he was. He's kind of like, ah, he's calculating a response. And is this guy after me for some reason? Uh, he, he just seemed uncomfortable when there was more than two people talking to him. Interesting. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple yeah. more here. Oh, I'm sorry. Go sure, ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you no, go. No, 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 it just, yeah, I think he's like a, he's like a, He's almost like a ghost or something, right? Like, because I'm I'm 46, and it's like you would hear about this you know, great teacher, but then he would, you know, he played the tour, then he wouldn't play the tour, and guys say he's difficult to work with, and it's like, it almost has like this like phantom thing about Mac O'Grady. Yet, you know, the guys who work with, I mean, it, that's why I asked, is he kind of half crazy or is he a genius? Because boy, there's a lot of people that were influenced by his teachings. Right, that you know, and the right. lineage continues onward. I think he's, he's just—it's just fascinating. Of you know, he's a fascinating character. I, I think you know, well, people who are as did, different are interesting. I think he's just—I would say—he's probably a, more of a genius than anything else in the sense of. And obviously, right. with Tommy and you guys working with him that long, he must—I mean, you guys must have trusted him that he knew his golf swing stuff, like he knew how to teach, and you believed oh, yeah. in his method. Oh, he could. He would have you, he he could demonstrate everything he said and he could relay it to you with the help of 
kinetics, I guess you'd call it, where he could, you know, he could help you move the club and the body to, so you could feel it. Mm-hmm. He could he could express it to you. He had it written down. He had four pages on how to hit one lob shot, just one type of lob shot. The degree of angle of the shaft, the face, the lie, uh, the, the speed, the degree of hip rotation and shoulder rotation and it's four pages just on one, just on a lob shot. Can you imagine getting him and Bryson in the same room? Oh, and, and, but he could, he could, and then show you how to do it. He could take your club and do it. And I, I challenge anybody. Uh, Hank is a hell of a player. I don't know. I've, I've never seen Ledbetter hit a golf ball, but, uh, Butch Harmon had known him forever. My grandfather got his father started at, w- at Wingfoot, so we've kind of always had kind of a, a nice friendship. But you know, but for those guys to be able to, I mean, you get Tiger's attention with some help. But if you could show Tiger how to do it right-handed and left-handed, you think, okay, this guy really knows what he's talking about because he's put in the time to hit it from either side of the golf ball. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, right. I mean like there's a there's a genius in that, right? Yes. There's a there's a definitely. genius in that. And when they people that say that he's tough to work with, have you seen the Hogan show that was on last night on the golf channel? I watched yeah, I watched the first episode. I'm recording the other one tonight while we're talking. Right. Yeah. Right. Tom Byron was a good friend. He was in New Mexico when he and his brother Kurt Byron and Tommy was at at University of New Mexico, and Byron worked with with Ben Hogan, and he told that story last night that he told me before about him meeting, going to meet Hogan at Shady Oaks and hit balls, and Tom's car, he had to get the, he get the tires changed or the brakes fixed on his car, and he had to drop his car off and then go to the golf course, and he he'd only hit a couple of balls, and. I'll try and make this short, but you'll see where I'm going in a sec. And Hogan walked up and looked at the ground, and he saw that there was only a couple of golf uh, divots. He said, how long have you been here? And, well, I had to take my car in. And he goes, well, do you have a bike? Or how far do you live from here? And he goes, about two miles. And he goes, you could have walked. And then he... Not the story. Yeah, right? right. Like, Hogan and, can't understand how he can't be there, right? Yeah, how, how he couldn't be there when the sun came up and be thoroughly warmed up and have hit every club in the bag. And, and anyway, that's the way Mac O'Grady was as well. I mean, you, if you're scheduled to work with Mac on a Tuesday in Palm Springs, uh, I'm just going to throw out a, a Bermuda Dunes or Indian Wells, whatever it was. If you're scheduled to meet him there <coughs> at nine, he expected you to be, Clean shaven, pressed clothes, uh, have already been hitting damn near every club in the bag and warmed up and ready to go when he got there. And some guys, I don't think, followed his ideology of, well, you know, that's not the way I practice, or uh, I only want you to watch me hit drivers or something. 
getting along with Mac, you had to play in Mac's format of golf instruction. You had to do it his way. He wasn't going to bend and go, well, okay. I'll only watch you hit drivers. He wanted to watch you hit everything and get a full understanding of how you played the game with all clubs. And, and if you disagreed with him or challenged him, that was, he's married to a Japanese lady, Flamenco. I mean, that was almost like if you challenged him <coughs> and if you did it twice over the same topic, he would consider that as you not believing what he's saying as the way I interpreted him. And it'd be like, are you, are you sure if you ever said that to Mac O'Grady, he would go, you know, it's over. We're done. Yeah. Interesting. Because he, did, he didn't, he didn't do anything half-assed. He's in full throttle. Uh, I don't know if, when he was full Phil McGlenno, if he was that way or not, but when he became Mac O'Grady, he was that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting character from, uh, from the world of golf, right? Like he's, oh, he's, oh, yeah. I have another one to ask you and we'll get you out of here. Sure. I appreciate your time yeah. and the conversation has been fascinating, but, uh, I did not know this fact. So I, I texted your, the boss, Olin, and I said, well, what's some interesting things, you know, outside of the normal stuff? I'm going to ask Sandy here. And he's like, you have to ask him about being the best man in John Daly's wedding. So how much fun <laughs> is it to be the best man in John, in a John Daly wedding? That has to be a pretty crazy story into itself. Uh, uh, John Daly. I met John playing mini tours in the Midwest, and we hit it off. John Daly is absolutely wonderful guy. Extremely generous. Um, We went down to uh, South Africa. We went down there. With uh, with Tom Lehman and David Faraday and Fulton Allen were playing down there before anybody had their tour cards. Um, then came back to the U.S. We played some more state opens, you know, trying to just trying to make it, trying to get to the next level. And John met a girl named Betty. She immediately jumped in the jumped in the car and started traveling with us. You know, I had I had a car and a girlfriend that I was traveling with, and he he had a, a little you know, little band and, uh, off the road, we went down the road and he said, Sandy, we're out near Vegas. I want to go to Vegas. I want to, I want to get married. And, uh, he asked Betty and she said, yeah, and we, we went to the church and she bucked at the church and <laughs> come to find out she was still married. Oh my God. Seriously. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and then they end up. She ended up getting a. Now he had won. Now he has won the PGA. And okay, now he's, so now he's now, full John now Daly, he's, right? Now, now he's grip it and rip it, right? And uh, they go down to the uh, what was it the, uh, the the PGA of America? What is that tournament they used to? The four major champions played in like Jamaica. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, uh, I forgot what it was called. Yeah, where well, they took all four majors and they went down there took, in the fall and went and did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, like, he took her down there and uh, they got things straightened out. He figured out 
you know, that she was still married. And anyway, she got divorced and they ended up getting married. And, but, uh, she said that when John, before my wife and I at that time was in Vegas, we, John and I went in the casino and he's gambling and, you know, we didn't have much money then and lost a bunch of money. And she said it was because, you know, he lost a bunch of money. She didn't want to get married that day and have it marred by, uh, anyway, I haven't told that story to many people, especially on the air, but John, she's such a great guy. He really is. If you walked up to him and go, John, I need to, can I have your driver? He might just pull it out of the bag and give it to you. Yeah, everyone he, I've he, talked he, to says he's a wonderful human being, right? On the pod, like everybody loves the guy. Oh, they, they and the media, they, they it seemed like they took pleasure in showing him, you know, when he was trying not to drink and his hands are shaking and you know, he's swatting balls off the green because his hands are shaking and walking away from walking, withdrawing in the middle of a round because he wasn't playing well or, but you know, at, I believe it was at a Hazel team he's playing and there was a lightning strike hit a tree. And there was a young man under the tree and it killed him. He was about, I think John said he was about mid thirties. Had two young children, maybe three. John never met the guy in his life. Didn't even know his name until after you know, they came out there. You know, his spectator had been killed at the at Hazel. I think it was a Hazel team. And John contacted the tournament, contacted the family, and put together a pro am that he ran for a handful of years to fund school for the kids in that family. You never hear those stories from the media. That's John Daly. He, in South Africa, we were playing in, Robin Freeman was down there playing with us, and he had a guy named Jumbo. Jumbo was a big, big black man from South South Africa, Johannesburg area. And we're playing up in Durban. And there's a different tribe in Durban than there is in Johannesburg. And the caddy master there ruled with an iron fist and a gang of caddies that were like a gang. And there was a caddy that was found hacked to death with machetes on the golf course at the very beginning of the week. Jesus. That's serious. Uh, right. And Robin's caddy's name was Jumbo. And he was a big, jolly, great guy. And he got into it with the caddy master. And the caddy master tried to hit him with his stick. And he grabbed the stick from him. And then the caddy master suck, stuck it or sent his gang of enforcers. And they're chasing Jumbo down the first fairway of the other golf course, which was where the player parking was. And John and his caddy, a friend of his from Arkansas, they see these guys chasing Jumbo with sticks, and they know that his caddy's already been hacked to death with machetes earlier in the week. And John jumps in his car with his caddy, and they take off across these fairways and head off the gang that was chasing Jumbo. John Yo tells his caddy, he goes, open the back door. And he opens the back door and they rent a car 
and they drive by and yell, he's yelling at Jumbo, jump in, jump in. And he jumps <laughs> in the car and they drive off across the golf course and leave the property. And, you know, I mean, John's risking his neck. Yeah. He's and a good for, soul. For a guy he's barely met. But yeah. John, John's a very generous, a great guy. Probably, I think, one of the top five talents of all time in golf. He could, well, he is an exquisite chipper of the ball. He could, he could hit every golf shot. He could hit the driver as long and straight, high three irons, long and straight repeatedly, chip it on glass downhill, the fine. I mean, I think he was one of the top five talents of all time. Well, it's an interesting story that you're the best man at wedding, but I, I hear this a lot from the guys who I talk to on this, that he, the guys like him, and they say the same thing, that, you know, he's there for his friends, he's really a good guy, and sort of what you see in the mainstream media is, is, is not the real John Daly. So they, it's, it's, Yeah, it's, they, well, they show a lot that John is not that great to himself. But if you're a friend of his, when he won the PGA, he didn't hesitate. He sent me a check, and he said, "You keep playing." And he sent me a large check. He said, "Don't you, don't you stop playing? You keep playing. You can do it too." I, you see what I did? I've seen these guys out here on the tour. You can play with them. Well, uh, I can see why we've been loyal and friends with them for a long time. That's a class act move from his side to do that, right? For fellow competitors and guys that you know he played all over the world with. Uh huh. What? Well, well, I got one final one here from you from uh, sure. all of the golf you've played around the world. What's your what's your favorite golf course, and what makes that golf course so great architecturally? Mm. Favorite golf course? You could play one. Day in, day uh, out. Day in, day out. On which side of the pond? You could pick, doesn't <laughs> it? You, any side. If you want to play St. Andrews every day, tee it up. No, actually, I, I, I agree with Olin. I love Pebble Beach. But I also love Carnoustie. Carnoustie is, you know, I had a desire to see the golf course and play it because my grandfather won the British Open there. But when I, first time I saw it, I was like, you better tighten up your shoelaces on the first tee because it does not let up until you finish. And there's, I mean, there's a couple of holes at Pebble Beach. So I mean, the first hole is not that difficult. And the second hole to par five is not that difficult. At Carnoustie, there, there, it's kind of like Oakmont, where my grandfather won the U.S. Open. There's no let up. And I think that's it's just a... When you finish a round of golf in a tournament at Carnoustie or Oakmont, or Pebble, you're you're exhausted. <laughs> every shot has to be hit with a plan, and it better be executed very close to that plan, or you're going to face an extremely difficult uh, up and down for a par, or an extremely difficult up and up and down for a bogey. <laughs> but is Carnoustie, is it, it's difficult, but you, but we do like about it is it's a fair test still in a sense. It's oh, not tricked up. It's in front. Like you, if you, if you hit good shots are rewarded, if you don't. Oh yeah. 
I, Olin, Olin played one of the finest rounds of golf I've ever seen anybody play during his a couple of years ago. He, he shot 66 on Friday and did not miss a golf shot, and every putt looked like it had a chance to go in the hole. And it, it, it's a fair golf course. There's no, there's a couple of little, uh, they call them burns. Some of them are very small, but if you know where they are, you know, if you go with, if you go where to go play there and you had to take a local caddy, he'd tell you where they are, but it's not tricky. And the greens are not severely undulated as well, but you want to be on the proper side of the hole. If you're chipping or putting, uh, it's kind of like have you, you've played Pebble Beach. I have, yes. The ninth hole, extremely difficult hole, and the hole, and the green is not severely undulated. It's just tilted. Right. Well, yeah, that's Carnus- hole. Yeah, Carnusia is similar. If you get it on the wrong side of the hole, you, you got your hands full of all kinds of work you don't want. And same with Pebble. It, you know, I, Tommy and I won the uh, when I was caddying for him. He's won that Spalding Invitational, which became the TaylorMade Invitational with the Callaway. He won that three times. And we figured that at Pebble Beach, if you keep the ball between the hole and the ocean, you can play well there. We'd have some good uphill looks, right? Yeah, I mean, that's if you could get enough guts to get it there and put it there. it's pretty much that simple, but on some greens, when they put the pin in certain spots, you don't have that option. So you've got to think your way around. How do I get this ball near the hole where I don't have a slick, slick downhill breaking putt? You know, that's just as soon as you touch it, it's going to get away from you, and you're just going to let gravity take it to the fringe. Or yeah, at Pebble, if you keep the ball between the hole and the ocean, you can play there. And Tiger showed that numerous times in the AT&T. Mark O'Meara won there five times. Um, but if you get the ball, if you get the hole between the ball and the ocean, oh, you, you're going to have a long day, and you're going to want to get to the tap room for a cold drink as quick as possible. <laughs> Well, if your two courses are Pebble Beach and Carnoustie, I think those are those are pretty good on both sides of the pond to say, you know, how do you pick one A or one B? So, yeah, that's, uh, I think I don't know if it gets any much, you know, much better than that. I haven't played Carnoustie yet, but I, I absolutely adore Pebble Beach. I think it's it's just absolutely fantastic. So, well, I can't yeah. thank you enough for the time today. Like everything you've seen in your career with the, you know your family history and playing professionally and, and caddying, I find that you know I was really looking forward to this conversation and and your you know work and doing this for so long. It's it's always going to be interesting to talk about. So you know, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck this week up in Madison with Olin. Uh, tell the boss we said hello. And I sure uh, will. like I said, man, I truly truly enjoyed the conversation. And thanks for your time, Sandy. Yes, well, thank you. I enjoyed it as well.